the Bible, I want to invite you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 6. If you do not have a Bible, there hopefully is one underneath the chair in front of you or around you on the seat beside you. Um, we refer to that as our pew Bible, and you can find this passage, Hebrews chapter 6, on page 943 of the pew Bible. This morning, we're going to look at the first eight verses of Hebrews chapter 6. Please follow along as I read from God's Word. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose, for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Hear the word of the Lord. This is a particularly hard passage. Uh, It may be one that you have gone to in the past, Hebrews 6, maybe focused primarily on verses 4 through 6, but this has caused many Uh, believers, consternation, concern, confusion, and by the help of the Spirit this morning, we pray to bring clarity to these first eight verses. And I think, first off, it's important to keep them together, because I do think that it helps us. As we are preparing to enter into this passage, I want to remind us of saving faith. Saving faith focuses focuses directly on Christ, accepting, receiving, and resting upon him alone for our justification, for our sanctification, and eternal life, all by virtue of the covenant of grace. According to the 1689 London Baptist Confession, this is what it says in a brief little paragraph on saving faith. This faith may exist in varying degrees so that it may be either weak or strong. Yet even in its weakest form, it is different in kind or nature, like all other saving graces, from the faith and common grace of temporary believers. There's a difference. Therefore, faith may often be attacked and weakened, but it gains the victory. It matures and many to the point that they attain full assurance through Christ, who is both the founder and perfecter 
of our faith. I think that's a helpful explanation, biblically grounded, of saving faith. Now, we must be very careful not to speculate about who has saving faith and who may be a temporary believer. It is possible for a true, biblically grounded uh, Christian to commit grievous sins. Like, for example, the Apostle Peter, Simon Peter, when he was a follower of Christ. I, I want you to think about this. If you, <clears throat> if you had bumped into Simon Peter on the evening of Christ's crucifixion, and then moments later you happen to bump into Judas Iscariot, you might not be able to have told or tell the difference of those two in that particular situation based off of their, ex- their example, their, their actions. What made the difference was the intercession of Christ for Simon Peter that led him to true biblical repentance. We see this throughout Scripture, and Hebrews chapter 6 is a notable example that it's possible to experience many aspects of the power of the kingdom of God and yet not actually experience salvation, regeneration, the new birth. And so do not mistake the things that accompany salvation in a person's life for the reality of repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. If you think about a local church, what that church is experiencing because it's sitting under expository faithful preaching, people are, are growing in, in Christ-likeness, being sanctified. Those who may be participating in or experiencing what's happening in that community may, as we see in this passage, experience the blessings of God, the rain that comes down, and yet they themselves have not truly been born again. And so, just by association does not validate one being a true believer or a temporary believer. By faith, Christians respond differently according to the content of each particular passage of Scripture that's, that's being read. There is an obedience to the commands. There is a trembling at the warnings, an embracing the promises of God for this life and the one to come. If you have been perplexed by Hebrews 6, you are not alone. So we want to begin by reminding ourselves of where we've been. Throughout the book, throughout this letter, the writer of Hebrews has sought to set our sights on one thing, or better said, one person, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The central argument of the book is clear. Jesus is better than everyone and everything. It sounds pretty simple, and he's just driving home this reality. He is better than every created being and is better than every part of what was told of old as far as the Old Testament or Old Covenant when it came to ceremonial systems. The author shows in the first five chapters that Jesus is better than angels, better than Moses, better than Aaron, 
And then from chapters 5 through 10, he explains that Jesus is a better high priest, a better sacrifice, and a a better mediator of a better covenant. The supremacy of Jesus runs throughout the whole letter. And this is important to keep in mind as we approach this particular passage that we're looking at. Jesus is better. And what we're going to see is those who once confessed that and then no longer did. There's an illustration that the author uses in this passage, verses 7 and 8, that I believe sheds light on the whole kind of thrust of the passage. That's why I said it was important to keep these verses together. So if you've got your Bibles opened, listen again. For the land that has drunk the, la- the, the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed and its end is to be burned. The word of the kingdom is like rain falling on land. Isaiah 5 uses the metaphor of rainfall causing crops to grow, and Isaiah in chapter 5 makes clear that the field is Israel, and the rain is the word of God. And so, to think about this illustration that's being used, Anyone who hears the word of the kingdom is considered land or soil. And what what we see in this illustration is whatever grows from the land, whatever is produced, reveals either blessing or curse. So is it going to produce a good crop or is it producing thorns and thistles? Saving faith produces something good. So you could say saving faith matures, it grows, if God permits. That's what we see in the first three verses of this passage. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and the eternal judgment. And this We will do if God permits. So these first three verses, the purpose of these verses is to call the the Hebrews, the recipients of this letter, to press on in Christian living. By pressing on in their knowledge of the deep things, the, the solid meat, the things of Christ. It is only in this way that they will be able to do what he's been calling them to, to, to hold fast their confession. We are not, if you read that and you're going, man, it kind of sounds like we're moving away from Christ. We are not being told to take our eyes off of Jesus and put them onto something else. To ensure our growth and continuance in Christian living, we are repeatedly exhorted to see him, to fix our eyes on him, to consider him, to go to him. That's all throughout the, the letter to the Hebrews. We will spend eternity mining the depths of what the Apostle Paul tells us or calls the unsearchable riches of Christ. And so please do not hear me that somehow we're moving on from Christ to something better. No, no, no. He is the better. I believe actually what's being described here in the elementary doctrine 
It's not talking about leaving the gospel behind, but rather, and I hope this begins to make sense as we work through this passage, leaving the types and shadows of the old covenant behind to walk in the light of Christ. Remember, these are Jewish uh, Christians who are being tempted by what they're experiencing in this life to maybe go back to what they had before. It started looking, according to their eyes physically, like something was better over here than what we're experiencing now. So the striking thing about this list that we have before us, there are three pairs and two um, a, a list of two within each pair. The striking thing about this list is that it's made up of foundational Old Testament and Jewish truths and practices that the Hebrews would have probably been building on when they were converted to Christ. So pair one, we've got repentance from dead works and faith towards God. The second pair is instruction about washings and laying on of hands. And the third pair, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. All of these are common Old Testament beliefs and practices among the Jews. When these Jewish believers were evangelized and converted, these things, it seems, were the foundational things that they were, they were, they were building on or rooting themselves in, a way of, of helping them understand the work of Christ. So all of those shadows and types, Christ fulfilled. Christ is the goal and fulfillment of all of these things. And so all these Old Testament themes were actually foundational in, in pointing them to the Messiah and his mission, what he came to accomplish. So we, we've seen the list. Now just think a little bit about what's going on here in this list. It gives based, basic doctrines that form really a foundation. Knowledge of these essential elements of the person and work of Christ should be assumed and built on in all of these. So for example, we cannot grasp true repentance from dead works and faith towards God without requiring at least a, a little foundational understanding that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And that God freely justifies those whom he calls by imputing Christ's active obedience unto the law and his passive obedience in his death. All of this is, is foundational, and Christ is the end, the aim. The washing rituals of Israel under the law represented purification of God's people. Various washings, though, cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. And then we see laying on of hands, there are different interpretations here, but just thinking about the Old Testament, the laying on of hands on sacrificial animals symbolized transferring a worshiper's guilt to a substitute. Ceremonial washing and the laying on of hands were both integral to Judaism. In order to move on to maturity, these Jewish believers needed to leave behind their confidence in practices and see the fulfillment in Christ. So all the while, Christian baptism forever washes one clean, represents what, God, what Christ has actually accomplished for sinners like us. 
It symbolizes unity with Christ and identification with his life, death, and resurrection. And the laying on of hands, transferring our guilt and shame by becoming a curse for us. That guilt and shame that was once placed on a sacrificial animal, Christ is the one who took our guilt and shame upon himself. When it comes to the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment, they and us, we, may, we must know that Christ is the first fruits of the resurrection and the one who saves us from the wrath to come. None of these things in the list exhaust the Christian faith, but they are a foundation. And John Calvin, writing on this passage, says this, he bids them to leave these rudiments, not that the faithful are ever to forget them, but they are not to remain in them. And this idea appears more clear from what follows. The comparison of a foundation. For in building a house, we must never leave the foundation, and yet to be always engaged in laying it would be ridiculous. For as the foundation is laid for the sake of what is built on it, he who is occupied in laying it again and again and proceeds not to the structure wearies himself with foolish and useless labor. He is calling them to start eating the solid food. This is a foundation and we are to grow. The, the need to learn to take the basic gospel truths about Christ and then use it to become discerning people about what is good and evil so that they and we attain holiness without which we will not see the Lord, Hebrews 12, 14. Again, I want to point our attention to the 1689 London Baptist Confession. This is what it says about justification. Faith that receives and rests on Christ and his righteousness is the only instrument of justification. Amen. Yet, it does not occur by itself in the person justified, but it is always accompanied by every other saving grace. It is not a dead faith, but works through love. There is a building up of a believer, a maturing of a believer, a sanctifying of a believer, where there is actual fruit that is produced in one's life who is truly born again. Salvation is a supernatural thing. It changes our hearts. It renews our wills. It transforms our life. And so there will be evidence to this miracle that God by his grace, has accomplished in our lives. The word, therefore, helps us understand, this is how this begins, therefore, it helps us understand that there is a close link between the thought and logic of the preceding passage, what came at the end of chapter 5. There has been a rebuke of the recipients of this letter because of their dullness of hearing. They halted their, their growth had been halted as Christians. Although he would desire to share solid food with them about the high priesthood of Christ, they still needed milk. While they should be, at this point in time, teaching others, they still need someone to teach them. 
He is calling them to do something about it. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. The writer of the Hebrews identifies himself. Please don't miss this. He identifies himself with them and invites them to join with him in progress together. Let us. Literally means let us be carried forward. Not remain where we are, but carried along. Which actually beautifully ties in with verse 3. And this we will do if God permits. This suggests that the learners are not carried forward by the instructor or by their own strength, but both carried along by God. Paul speaks to the same effect in Romans 8.14 when he declares that all who are led by the Spirit of God, all who are carried along by the Spirit of God are sons of God. And so the energy, hidden and inward, of the Holy Spirit is is the true uh, dynamic of spiritual growth. Where evidence of Christian development and progress to maturity is lacking, it must actually be doubted whether there has been a genuine experience of the Holy Spirit's activity. Where evidence of Christian development and progress to maturity is lacking, it must be doubted whether there has been a genuine experience of the Holy Spirit's activity. Now, going back to the illustration, verses 7 and 8, what we saw in the first three verses really reflects land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those whose sake it is cultivated. It receives a blessing from God. There is sanctifying work of God upon believers' lives. And we will see that in our lives as believers, we are becoming more and more conformed into the image of the Son. Praise be to God that He is accomplishing that in our lives. Verses 4 through 6 describe a different type of land that experiences rain that often falls on it, but it produces something very different. Verse 8, if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. So verses 4 through 6 is that prickly pear, is that part of the passage where people really get hung up. So I want you to hear it again, for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. The chief difficulty connected with our passage is to make sure the persons spoken of here who is the author talking about? Is the Holy Spirit inspiring this author describing regenerated or unregenerated souls? That's the question. In these verses, we are told that those who fall away cannot be brought again to repentance. Many, many believe that this passage refers to genuine Christians 
and that those with true faith can actually lose their salvation. And considering the persons spoken of, it is important to note that the author, the author does not say us who were once enlightened, nor even you, but instead he refers to them as those. So this is in, in really sharp contrast, if you're reading through chapter 6 and continue on into verse 9, this is in sharp contrast to them, he says to the Hebrews in verse 9, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. So it is impossible in the case of those, but in your case, we're hopeful. That's important. What we see from this passage is that an unregenerate person can experience a list of gracious gifts from God, the rain that falls down on the land, and even claim to have faith who are in reality far from the kingdom of God. In the case of those who have once been enlightened, so we're going to just kind of work through these descriptions. Enlightened here means to be instructed in the doctrine of the gospel, to hear God's word proclaimed. It's, it's used again in chapter uh, 10, verse 26. The same people are said to have received the knowledge of the truth. Many people hear and respond in a positive way to the gospel, but they don't truly believe it, or their hearts have not been transformed by it. They may know many things about the gospel, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they have been regenerated. They have also, it's described, tasted the heavenly gift. Blessings come down. In particular, blessings come down to Christians. This is what I was describing in a local expression of the bride of Christ. In the household of two parents who are Christians, blessings of God come down. And these blessings have been received by those who are in Christ and blessings have been experienced even by those who are just there and experiencing and in and around the people of God. In these experiences of tasting the heavenly gift, they may even demonstrate some of the gifts of the Spirit, which for us that's really difficult to wrap our minds around, but I want to root it in Scripture. So we, we, we hear this in Matthew chapter 7. This is Jesus speaking. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Next, we, we see that they have shared in the Holy Spirit. Another way that this is translated, they are partakers of the Holy Spirit. I think the word partaker is helpful in understanding this because it sounds like, hold on, if you have shared in the Holy Spirit, that seems to be a mark of a believer, right? 
it should be pointed out that the Greek word for partakers here is different than when it is used in other parts of Scripture. So a passage that, if you were with us in adult Sunday school, was read, 2 Peter chapter 1, this is what we hear. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. That use of partakers different than the partaker used here in Hebrews chapter 6. The word here simply means companion, a companion to the, the works or the things of the Holy Spirit. They were companions with what was happening in the midst of the covenant believers. So you may still be pushing back and going, I'm not sure if I'm, I'm quite tracking with you there. I want, I want to keep pointing us back to Scripture to help us see that there's even a difference between the partaking in Second Peter and what we hear about this companion uh, to the things of the Holy Spirit. So going back to the ministry of Jesus, in John chapter 6, he's teaching some very difficult but glorious truths in John chapter 6. And in verse 60, when many of his disciples, these are companions who have been walking alongside him, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Then a few verses later, Jesus says, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. And then in verse 66, this is the response of many companions of Christ. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. They were companions with Christ up to this point, but not truly partakers of Christ. In verse 5, we hear that they have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. I want you to observe how the author of this letter strategically inspired by the Spirit, uses this phrase or description, they tasted. They tasted, they tasted. And I think that's actually really important, even when we see the difference of someone who has drunk from the waters versus just tasted. There, there's a contrast happening here, a difference being, being pointed at here of those who taste and those who devour or, or consume. The difference between tasting and drinking really seems to be an emphasis. The land that produced a good crop, it was the one that, that drunk from the rain versus just merely tasting. Another example of this tasting versus partaking or drinking or eating would be the example found in Mark chapter 6 when we hear of Herod and his interactions with John the Baptist. So Herod, he feared John, knowing that he was a just and holy man. He observed him, he heard him, and he even heard him gladly. But he was simply just tasting the word, tasting the goodness of the word, but he was never transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. He never ate the word. 
these powers of the age to come are actually mentioned earlier in Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 4. There is this description of these mighty powers that these people have tasted or have experienced. They had been personal witnesses of the miracles and the wonders that followed Christ's ascension through the ministry of the apostles. They, see, they, they witnessed glorious manifestations of the Spirit in their midst. And so, in a sense, they, they tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come. Our text tells us it is impossible for those who have experienced these things and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. What is apostasy? It is an abandonment of what one has professed. It is a total desertion or departure from one's faith or religion. It is, according to 1 Timothy chapter 1, it is making a shipwreck of your faith. It is like Lot's wife, who though she had outwardly left Sodom, yet her heart was still there. How are we to understand this warning? First, we are told that they have fallen away. In falling away, those who once were professors of Christ are returning in this context back to their former state of Judaism. So the question in context becomes this. Can a Jew who converts to Christianity and then repudiates Christ and goes back to Judaism can they come back to repentance again? And what we see very clearly is it is impossible. At issue is more, though, than just going back into Judaism. We, we hear these words, seeing they crucified to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to open shame. Another way to, 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 to read this passage. I think this is really helpful when we just kind of spend a little bit of time of what was going on in their repudiation of Christ and their falling away. They are, identi uh, they are identifying themselves with the ones who crucified Christ. They did more to dishonor Jesus than even the murderers who put him on the cross. Think about this. The Jews who crucified Christ never professed to acknowledge his divine mission. But these apostates that have made this profession and have been companions on the way, they had made a kind of trial of Christianity and after trial, they rejected it. They knew who Christ was and what he offered and they rejected him. So to do this meant that they re-entered that house that Christ had left desolate, Matthew 26, 23, and would be, uh, would be to join forces actually with those who, who murdered Christ 
and thus crucifying to themselves the Son of God afresh. And by their apostasy, they put him to open shame, open ridicule. And so the farmland analogy of these verses, 7 and 8, illustrate the distinction between external experiences, the blessings that may come upon, and internal heart responses. A.W. Pink once famously said, All is not gold that glitters. Not all who profess to receive the gospel are born of God. I think what probably helps understand this passage most is to, to go and remember a parable that Jesus taught, the parable of the sower in Matthew chapter 13. Now, we're probably all familiar, there are soils, different types of soil, and they represent four different patterns of responses to the word of God. The first soil represents a hard-heartedness. Do you remember the seed that was sown was quickly just snatched up? It never took root at all. The second represents the shallow heart. It pr produces immediate signs of life, but there is no root. And so when the, when the afternoon sun comes out, the plant withers and dies. The third soil represents the one who hears the word but the worries of this age and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. So the second and third soil types are the people that I think are being described here in Hebrews chapter 6. They receive the word, but what is being produced actually reveals their heart. What comes to light and is visible actually is a manifestation of what had not actually taken place deep down in their soul. They received the word of God, but ultimately produced thorns and thistles. So the parable shows all of us that intelligence might be informed, a conscience might be searched, natural affections may be stirred, yet there is no root in them. And what we see throughout all of Scripture is that only God can make the soil of our hearts fit to receive the word of the gospel so that it actually will take root. We need the Lord to do, to do this. Not only at conversion, regeneration, the new birth, but continually throughout the Christian life as we come to him over and over and over again, believing and trusting and repenting of our sins. And so pastorally this morning, this is not seeking to put insecurity in the hearts of believers. We do not believe that this passage teaches that believers can fail to persevere in faith and fall somehow in and then out and under the wrath of God. God's promise to persevere his elect is not subject to fail. Believers who are faithfully following Christ's commands can be confident and actually have assurance of their salvation. If we seek assurance of our faith, we will find, we will find it in doing the things that faithful Christians do. 
We will grow out of elementary things and into maturity. And so I would argue the passage before us is a warning. And as a warning, it alerts us to lurking dangers that entice us to forsake Jesus. We need, all of us need to hear, to heed the sincere, urgent warnings of Hebrews chapter 6. May we understand that God regularly uses warnings and consolations or threats and promises together to secure us in the way of salvation. As you come to the end of this passage, that illustration is really where we, we, we need to land and, and evaluate. We can understand land that experiences rain, and what comes up is an identifi- identification marker of what was actually going on inside the soil. And so all of us can assess our own lives and should in light of this passage. May this be the day where we search God's scripture by the power of the Spirit, apply to our hearts and minds, and reflect earnestly on what is being presented to us this morning. Let us pray. Father, as we come to you now in prayer, may we be alerted by the warning in this passage. May we understand the path to apostasy is really paved with bricks of apathy towards Christ. May you stir us up in our affections of the one and only Son of God. There is such rich blessing and rain that falls on the visible church. The experiences that many who are in close proximity to the new covenant believers can can seem to provide salvific security, whether it's children growing up in a family home or weekly attenders of Grace Covenant Church. Father, this morning I beg you to help each of us diligently and faithfully examine ourselves by the light of your unerring word. May we claim not to be a child of Abraham unless we do the work, the works of Abraham. Abraham believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. God, may you grant us to be good soil that bears much fruit. And by your grace and for your glory, we pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.